The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST to check out to get 10% off. And by Betterment, the largest automated investing service managing billions of dollars for people just like you. Get up to six months of investing free when you go to betterment.com slash GIST. Betterment, investing made better. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, March 28th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the Belgian police, all both of them, had a guy named Faisal C. in custody, and they only named him Faisal C. because you wouldn't want to publicly shame him, you know. Here's NBC yesterday describing Faisal C., who authorities say was caught in surveillance video alongside the two confirmed suicide bombers in Brussels. Six days after the airport attack, police haven't specified Faisal Shefu's alleged role. Arrested Saturday, he's facing charges including terrorist assassinations or terrorist murder. But today, police released Faisal C. based on lack of evidence. Now, maybe I'm an apologist for the police state. And by the way, we're always being warned of the dangers of the police state. But I think we're seeing the dangers of the lack of police state. Anyway, I've seen this conversation a hundred times. How it must have gone. Yeah, we got this guy, Faisal C. I like him for the airport job. But he's going to lawyer up. Listen, man, give me another go at him. Captain says if we don't charge him, we got to kick him. Which is fine, kicking Faisal C. When Faisal C. is a jewel thief played with gritty panache by William Forsyth. When Faisal C. is the most wanted terrorist in the world, if you release that guy, the phrase can't be lack of evidence. The phrase has to be, it wasn't him. We're sure it wasn't him. Now, happily, police in Belgium, both of them, Sebastian and Gaetan, announced that three people have been charged with participation in a terror group. They were identified as Yassine A, Mohammed B, and Abu Bakr O. Mohammed B, that'll narrow it down. Now, Yassine A and his like, they haven't killed as many as, say, Zyklon B, but they're certainly trying to. I hope there's enough evidence that you don't have to let them all go after a day. Now, let's say I'm totally wrong. Let's say Faisal C totally didn't do it. Well, that still reflects really poorly on the Belgian police. They still have screwed up because they told everyone that Faisal C was their man. And that took away momentum from trying to catch the still now, I guess, unidentified third airport attacker. I really loathe all the talk of, you know, rounding up the Muslims and war against Islam and them and us and all the fear-mongering and all the jabbering on the right. But Belgium sure sounds like they have made really bad security calculations. Not to over-police, but to dangerously under-police. That's a thing, too. The detention of Faisal C. gets an F. On the show today, a similar phenomenon about policing Europe. One of the butchers of Bosnia's court case is finally over. After eight years, we talked to the author of The Butcher's Trail. And in the spiel, democracy, pretty great system, except for all the dummies. But now, Radovan Karadzic meets justice, or some tamped-down version thereof. All right, so I've got an idea for a new website, a new blog. As I asked my kids, do you know what a blog is? And at first we moved, you know, I was off for a few days. So we, meaning Slate, moved to Brooklyn. But I moved to Brooklyn too in a, uh, you know, retaliatory strike, I guess you would say. And I thought at first we'd review all the restaurants that were in our neighborhood. But, you know, little kids talking about restaurants, maybe throwing around words like cilantro and yummy. 
It's a blend of the high and the low that I think we've all seen before. I think Jesse Eisenberg wrote about it in the uh, Bream book that we talked about. So I have this idea. I think that what we're going to review is those little 50-cent horsey rides that seem to be dotting our street. I don't know why. There's one in front of the grocery store. There's one next to the pizza. It's a duck. So I don't know how much reviewing you could get in there, but it won't be sort of that highfalutin, oh, we're going to have an eight-year-old talk about mouthfeel. They'll talk about how long the duck rides, the length of the ride. So that's going to be our website. How do I execute this vision? Via Squarespace. Squarespace, I know, looks professional. It looks professionally designed, even if a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old are fueling it from the intellectual space. It has intuitive and easy-to-use tools. I have a website right now at MikePesca.com where we answer such questions as, what's that thing I say at the end of the show? And really, that's the only question we answer. But there's, you, get a, you get a sense of what Squarespace websites can look like with even very, very little input. Also, we have an offer. You can start a free trial today at Squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. That's the offer code GIST. And you can start using Squarespace and reviewing little horsey and ducky rides in your neighborhood or whatever you need to do. The Bosnian War lasted from 1992 to 1995. The trial of one of the main malefactors in that war, Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic, lasted twice as long. But last week it ended. Guilty. Guilty of genocide. They termed it ethnic cleansing. He drove the slaughter of 8,000 people in Srebrenica. Before we talk about Karadzic, who is serving 40 years in prison, which is to say a life sentence for the 70-year-old, let's talk about who he was and who he became. Joining me now is Julian Borger, the diplomatic editor for The Guardian, who covered the war in Bosnia, and he returned to the Balkans to report on the Kosovo conflict as well. Hello, Mr. Borger. How are you? Good, good. Your new book, The Butcher's Trail, How the Search for Balkan War Criminals Became the World's Most Successful Manhunt, is your account of how they nailed him. So who was Karadzic, and how did his separation of powers with Serb leader Milosevic, Serbadan Milosevic, work? Milosevic was the, the big orchestrator of uh, this kind of Serb, greater Serb project. He reckoned that if Yugoslavia, the old communist Yugoslavia, was going to uh, collapse, he wanted the Serbia uh, that came out of it to be as big as possible. And so in both Croatia and in Bosnia, he had Serb proxies, who, and their jobs, from his point of view, were to carve out as much Serb territory out of those two countries as they could. And in Bosnia, it was Radovan Karadzic. Uh, he was the, the local leader, but he was very much an underling to Slobodan Milosevic in Belgrade, pulling all the strings. But it was his viciousness and choices that he made. Had he made other choices, yes, we understand it was a war and this was part of his defense, but it was conscious choices that he made that led to genocide. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the whole idea of this Serb Republic uh, that he would cut, he carved out of Bosnia was based on the idea of ethnic purity, and that meant ethnic cleansing. And that was really a euphemism for the use of terror, mass killing, mass rape to terrorize, to drive out non-Serbs, the, the Croats and the, the Muslims. 
So after the war ended, the Bosnian leadership essentially goes free. To some extent, they flee, but they hide in plain sight. So could you talk about who Karadzic became? Right. Well, Karadzic, he hung around for the first couple of years after the peace because the NATO commanders who went into Bosnia to keep the peace didn't want to get involved in arrests on behalf of the uh, Hague War Crimes Tribunal. So he, he left, left free for a couple of years. Then when they started getting interested, when they started going after him, he went underground. He ended up after a few years in Belgrade, eventually ran out of money. And so came up with this idea of disguising himself as a new age guru, a sort of spiritual healer, and uh, did very well at it. He he really uh, hid in plain sight. He even had a franchise for selling vitamins for a Connecticut-based uh, company. And he appeared on uh, in conferences and seminars and had a, a quite an active practice. And people went to him, and no one in all this time recognized him. He had a big, bushy white beard, a kind of top knot on the top of his head, uh, tied up with a black bow. Uh, and he looked so otherworldly that no one you know, was able to, to look into his eyes and see you know, this, this well-known fugitive that everyone was looking for in the region. It was quite an extraordinary feat, really. Now, you paint a picture of him literally sitting near a picture of himself when he was his old self under his own name. The milieu was people in the where he hung around in Belgrade would be sympathetic to Karadzic. Do you think that created a sort of look the other way or a blindness or they really didn't want to know who this person was? Uh, yes, he went to this bar, the Lula Kucha, which means the la- madhouse, and it was full of uh, old Bosnian Serb nationalists and uh, Montenegrins uh, and uh, people slightly sort of outsiders in, in Belgrade. And uh, it was a nationalist bar, so they had uh, pictures of uh, Karadzic and his military commander, Mladic, up on the wall. But he came in as this new age uh, guru who lived n- nearby. His, his cover name was Dragan Dabic, and he would not just sort of sit on the sidelines, but he would take center stage and pay, play this sort of single-string uh, uh, fiddle that they play in the Balkans called the Guzli, and everyone would crowd around him, and he would sing these, sing these ballads. And all of them expressed complete shock when it came to light that he was Karadzic, because they were big fans of Karadzic. But again, this sort of cognitive uh, dissonance, you know, they, the, because there was no expectation of seeing them there, they looked into the to his eyes and, and didn't see him. They saw who they thought he was. Nationalism in Serbia was always somewhat popular, and there wasn't always the willingness to look within, to reconcile, even to offer up the clear architects of genocide, even to say, sometimes what happens is uh, the people will say, well, okay, that horrible, those bad apples, we'll say they were the criminals, but absolve ourselves. But it seems to me that in Serbia, there was much more protection of uh, these criminals than you'd find elsewhere. And so I guess my question is, how much did democracy, the will of the people, impede justice in this case? It was only when the the population decided for a few years we had enough of nationalism and they, they elected someone who they thought would help get Serbia into the European Union and bring a better, more prosperous future. Uh, and so they voted pragmatically for this guy, uh, Tadic, who eventually led to the last sort of uh, roundup uh, of uh, Karadzic, Mladic. And the hope was this would get 
Serbia into the EU. But since then, because the EU is less attractive and because it didn't succeed in any kind of immediate uh, Serbian accession to the EU, there's a certain amount of disillusion set in and nationalism once again is to the fore in Serbia. And certainly the, the, the main response when Karadzic got his verdict the other day was uh, 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 one of victimhood, a nationalist response that this yet again showed that the world was against us and that we are ultimately the victims of what's happened in, in the Balkans. So that moment of hope uh, that moment of pragmatism in Serbian politics has for the moment passed because it didn't lead to uh, immediate results. Wait, it, would you say to this day that Radovan Karadzic is still more popular in Serbia than not? I would say so. I mean, he's not personally popular. He's seen as being corrupt, uh, as having led certainly the Bosnian Serbs into military disaster. But when he has managed during his trial to portray the trial as against Serbia and against the Serb nation, which it did to some extent, mm-hmm. then the, the feeling of, of solidarity when it got the verdict that it, this was all part of an anti-Serb conspiracy. But although he himself hadn't been that popular, he's become more popular because he, he made himself this kind of Serb martyr. And this has kind of resonated with a, with a sense of victimhood. Yes, we see that uh, oftentimes with uh, victims on trial. I'm watching a TV show about the O.J. Simpson trial, which plays on some of those themes. Now, I wanted to ask you about the length of the trial. At what point is justice delayed, justice denied? Because the Milosevic trial lasted four years. He died in dock. This one lasted eight years. Is that too long? Yeah, I would say it was too long, especially if you add on the uh, 11 years or so that he was on the run and, and uh, uh, you know, li- living free. Um, so it's 20 years now since the end, so the end of the war. A lot of the people who, who suffered the greatest uh, losses, you know, ha- ha- have died. Certainly, uh, although there was a certain sense of grim satisfaction at the end of it from some of the, the, the survivors and victims' families, Certainly, justice in Bosnia looks more like a glass half empty than half full. Uh, People feel all the justice that has been denied in all the years that have gone by where these people have have gone without uh, true judgment. But if you ask any of them, you know, would would it have been better not to have the court in the first place? None of them would say that. They would all say, well, it is definitely better than nothing, but they would have liked justice to be swifter for the sentences to be harsher uh, and uh, so it's kind of left everyone feeling dissatisfied the serbs feel they've been victimized the, the on the bosnian side they feel that uh, you know justice has been half-hearted so the whole experiment in justice that the the hague war crimes tribunal uh, represents has not not left anyone in the region feeling that uh, justice has been served for them Right, because one of the reasons why the trial lasted so long is the people who are behind the trial would argue, well, that we have to thoroughly document these are huge charges. We have to, um, here in America, we have the expression dot our I's, cross our T's. And yet, as you point out, that by playing the victim, he becomes a martyr to his own people. It doesn't even, it doesn't even go far to convince his constituency that this was thoroughly done. It just took a long time. 
they are still going to appeal because of the nature of the trial that, that some facts and some witness testimonies were entered into the court record from other trials from the Hague War Crimes Tribunal. And so they're saying that itself is unfair. Yeah. So although they were given a lot of time and are able to summon all the witnesses and present all the documentary evidence they wanted, they're still saying that by its nature the trial was unfair. And so we're going to go now, you know, after all this time on trial, into an appeal process. And that's going to take another three years at least. Yeah. And let's talk about the sentence because it was 40 years. I know the death penalty is not possible in these trials. It is now no longer an accepted norm in Europe. I mean, you were talking about the EU. You can't even become an EU member if you have the uh, death penalty as a uh, provision in your country. And yet 40 years, just that one massacre, not all of his crimes because he was convicted of other things, just Shrebenica with the 8,000 victims, it works out to two days per victim. To Bosnians, it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, I talked to some of the lawyers at the tribunal, and they said, actually, because life never really means life in European courts and European penal system, by putting 40 years on, he'd probably get more time actually spent in jail than uh, he would have if it had been a life sentence. But that's kind of lost on survivors and victims' families who just, you know, for them, the word life, was the important thing they wanted to hear. And to hear a, a time limit being put on his penalty was very hurtful for them. They felt that, you know, it was, as you say, valuing, valuing every life lost very cheaply. I will say if he lives to be 89 or 90 in jail, maybe those vitamins really did work. Uh, okay, I well, want to ask. Live, people live very well in in because you've got to imagine this is a very good health system. Yeah, uh, and one of the former inmates of the prison there said to me that if their own children had gone looking for an old folks' home uh, for them in their own regions, they couldn't have done better than the Schwedingen uh, jail in The Hague. Julian Borger is the diplomatic editor of The Guardian. He is the author of The Butcher's Trail, How the Search for Balkan War Criminals Became the World's Most Successful Manhunt. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you're looking to get your financial house in order, or even to turn your financial rental apartment into an actual house, Betterment might be for you. Betterment is the largest independent automated investing service for over 145,000 customers. It manages close to $4 billion a year for people like you, people who are familiar with the internet, people who don't necessarily need to go to a balding man's office to have him say to you, have you heard about diversification? Maybe you've heard about diversification. Maybe you'd like to hear more about it via a cyber type interface rather than balding guy in an office. Anyway, it's never too late to save for retirement, to think about your financial goals. And by doing a toe touch into Betterment, you get an idea of where you can go, where you can take this, maybe what you've been doing wrong. They offer some advice, they offer some services, and we've got a deal for you. You can get up to six months of automated investing free, and you can get more information when you go to betterment.com slash gist. That's betterment.com slash gist. Betterment Investing Made Better. And now the spiel. It's a hell of a hole. Democracy is a pretty good system. Democracy, it's good for you and for me. Democracy, it's a pretty good system, except when the voting public is a bunch of retarded gorillas. So I've been reading about this fella, this Donald Trump guy. Have you seen this? Have you been reading about him? And Donald Trump does, in fact, say this. 
I will be the greatest jobs-producing president that God ever created. Which is why conservative scholar Charles Murray defined Trumpism on the PBS NewsHour like this. Trumpism is the expression by the white working class of a lot of legitimate grievances that it has with the ruling class. Everything from the cultural disdain that the ruling class holds the working class in to the loss of all kinds of manufacturing jobs, the importation of low-skilled labor, all the ways in which, uh, if you're a member of the working class, you have, over the last 30, 40 years, been screwed. So that's one way to present the story, right? You say, if you think that Trump's appeal is all about xenophobia and racism, well, there are some very real economic anxieties at play. But there's another equally prevalent story that goes like this. If you think Trump's appeal is all about economic anxiety, well, there is some real racism and xenophobia at play. And guess what? They're both right. They're all right. People have a right to be anxious. People also have a right to be racist. And the problem with democracy is that we seek to actively instill the first feeling, and then we get all upset when it manifests itself in the second. Because of people. So on ABC's This Week, Jonathan Carl, guest hosting, pursued another type of issue when he had Trump on, and he threw out this hypothetical. A lot of people wonder, uh, given some of your proposals, whether or not you would go the next step towards internment camps. Uh, and I know you've never proposed that, but let me just ask you here now, would you categorically rule out the idea of internment camps for American Muslims? No, Jonathan, no. Why do you have to ask Captain Crazy Pants to endorse a bonkers policy that he hasn't actually championed when there are so many bonkers policies that he has, like huge tariffs and deporting 11 million and making libel laws more of an opt-in type phenomenon? I know why Jonathan Carl asked the question, because there is a chance that Trump would say, uh, yeah, sure, yeah, okay, yeah, I do believe in that, and I can always contradict myself tomorrow, because that never seems to hurt. But in fact, Trump said no, no internment camps, and I get the sense that it's not because Trump thinks it's bad to endorse internment camps as much as it is that he thinks it's bad to endorse something first proposed by a member of the media. Trump, in that very interview, goes on to take a lot of credit for other people giving him a lot of credit. When I talk about illegal immigration, I went... I went through hell with illegal immigration. Now everyone's saying Trump is right. When I talked about the problems that we have with trade, now they're all saying Trump is right. Same thing with NATO. When I did that, two days, I took abuse from the media, falsely. Now people are saying, many, many people are saying, you know, Trump is right. He's absolutely right about NATO. Trump's right about that. I've been seeing this meme everywhere. Buy the hat. But the main thing Trump was claiming being right on was Belgium. Well, I'm the only one that predicted it. I said Brussels is a hellhole, and the New York Times mocked me and, and said a couple of months ago, the New York Times did a big story about how dare Donald Trump say Brussels is a hellhole. I mean, how did he ever predict that? Was it that the Paris terror attacks were planned, plotted, recruited, and driven by Belgians? Was it that every terrorist expert in the world was saying that Belgium was dangerously underpoliced? Was it that scores of isolated Muslim youth from one Brussels neighborhood were fleeing to make jihad in Syria? Most of these facts were well chronicled in places like the New York Times, and most everyone paying attention knew that Belgium was terribly vulnerable. But most people in America weren't paying attention, as evidenced by professional paid-to-talk-on-television type person, Sonny Hostin. Here she is on The View. 
And let me also say this about Donald Trump. You know, we trash him often here. Um, bottom line is in January, in ja and you've been saying that, I've been Raven, saying that. In January of this year, he said Brussels was a hellhole. And, and this is an interview with uh, Maria Baratiromo uh, on, I believe, CNBC. I could be wrong about mm -hmm. that. You are wrong about that. It was the Fox Business Channel. Also, it's Maria Bartiromo. But you're also very, very wrong about Trump getting it right, or Trump getting it right in any notable way. America assimilates its Muslims. Much of Europe doesn't. Roundups or deportations or the message that you're something other than American, oh, that would go a long way towards creating terrorists, not fighting terrorism. Now, you can agree or disagree with that point, but to hold the belief that Trump said something special or insightful or visionary when he noted that Belgium had Muslim assimilation problems, that's just proof of your ignorance. That's just proof that you weren't paying attention. We, as a society, are vulnerable to Svengalis, to demagogues, to charismatic crypto-racists, to strongmen. And usually, the blame falls on the speaker. But it really shouldn't. It should fall on the listener, or people who don't listen to enough until they start listening to the strongman. Now, it's not everyone, but there is a significant portion we're seeing now who hearken on the misleading words which might ease our anxieties, whatever the source of the anxieties. Ah, well. It's like I like to say about democracy. Democracy is a pretty good system. Democracy, it's good for you and for me. Democracy, it's a pretty good system, except when a good percentage of the populace is a... Bunch of assholes. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer, always on the lookout for a bunch of gypsies, tramps, and thieves. Except for the gypsies. They're just the Roma people. They deserve respect. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, warns against a bunch of the sorriest excuses for ball players he's ever seen. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of Panoply, is marketing a show aimed especially for a bunch of Olympic science majors. The gist. We have a lovely bunch of coconuts. Oomperu, Depru, Dupru, and thanks for listening. Thank you.